This is Boss Talk, and I'm Mike Elk, Senior Labor Reporter at Payday Report. Boss Talk is a project of Payday Report, a new labor publication based out of Louisville, Kentucky, aimed at covering the growing labor movement in the South. Remember the public radio show, uh, Car Talk? Well, Boss Talk is a lot like that. However, instead of teaching you how to fix your car, we teach you how to fix your boss. Each week, my co-host and I, University of Wyoming labor law professor Mike Duff, will talk about ways in which workers were able to fix their boss through organizing and labor law tactics. Boss Talk comes to you this week from Raleigh, North Carolina, where Payday is investigating the growing movement for people in favor of livable wages in cities across North Carolina. So far, 10 cities in North Carolina have voted to pass living wages for their workers. This is something that's a growing trend throughout the South and something that we look to closely monitor here. However, the story we're presenting this week comes to us from Alabama. There was an article this week in Bloomberg Business Week entitled Inside Alabama's Auto Job Boom, Cheap Wages, Little Training, Crushed Limbs, The South's Manufacturing Renaissance Comes with a High Price by Peter Waldman. This article focuses on a number of stories of temp workers in the Alabama auto industry that were injured or killed on the job. Uh, One of the stories they talk about is Regina Elsie. Uh, She was killed in February 2016 when a machine crushed her, and her death was entirely preventable. Workers in this country are required by law to be trained in locked-out procedures when using a big machine. When attempting to fix a big machine, workers routinely have to power down the machine and lock it so that it can't move. However, Elsie was working as a temp on a line of a company named Aging, which is an auto parts supplier for Kia in Alabama. Her area was supposed to produce 450 units uh, every shift. However, rarely did they get above 350, they said. And wanting to make the unit more productive so that she could move from being a temp making 8.75 an hour to someone making 10.25 an hour, she was eager to do whatever was needed to keep the assembly line moving. One day in February, the machine jammed, and Elsie went into the machine with a screwdriver and attempted to get the machine going again, and she was crushed to death. No one in the plant knew how to remove her from the machine. Finally, an emergency medical technician came and removed her. Now, if she had just followed a simple lockout procedure, this would have been easily preventable. The machine would have been turned off, and there's no way it could have moved when she was attempting to fix it. However, the workers at this plant were never trained in this procedure. And for this, they were fined $2.5 million by OSHA, which is a pretty whopping fine by OSHA. However, it's getting tougher and tougher and tougher for workers to stand up for unsafe work conditions in this country. Uh, Mike, you're a fellow in the College of Workers' Compensation, and you were just at a big conference. What do you see as the emerging trends that are making it tough for for workers to really stand up on the job when they get hurt? Well, you know, Mike, um, one of the things that we've noticed um, really uh, since the 1980s, the early 1980s, is... Uh, diminishing uh, workers' compensation uh, benefits for workers uh, across the uh, the country. Uh, often, there's just uh, there's been an erosional movement. In other words, uh, benefits have gradually gotten worse. Coverage has gradually gotten worse. The allowance for attorneys' fees in workers' comp cases have gradually gotten worse. Sometimes there's really there are there are more naked power grabs, as was the case in uh, Oklahoma over the last couple of years, where the state was attempting to abolish workers' compensation altogether and allow for the institution of a kind of an alternative benefit structure that pretty clearly would have provided inferior benefits. And yeah, at this conference that I was attending in Phoenix, 
this was a matter of uh, open discussion, uh, a slightly different context. There was some sense that workplaces uh, were getting safer. And uh, the sort of the, the gist of the discussion that was going on is if workplaces continue to get safer and um, there aren't as many workers' comp claims, maybe there won't be workers' comp lawyers. Maybe workers' comp law- lawyers will have to go out of business because they can't earn a fee to, to make a living uh, doing workers' comp. Now, of course, in order to buy into any of that, you have to accept that workplaces are really getting safer. And for a couple of reasons, I don't. I mean, one is that I think there's a lot of underclaiming that goes on generally. People don't file workers' comp claims because of fear of retaliation. You know, I'll get fired if I follow work. Uh, does file does that happen often claim. that workers get fired when they file? It does. It does happen. And you know, Mike, one of the one of the advantages uh, to having the uh, blue collar background that I have. You know, I worked for blue collar um, employers from the time I was seventeen until the time I was thirty two. Is my my impression when I when I worked as a blue collar worker is you file a workers comp claim and they're going to find some way to get rid of you. That was basically the idea that I had in my mind when I when I went to law school. So I have a pretty different perspective. Uh, from a number of folks that uh, that go into law, and certainly that 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 uh, then people that teach law at a theoretical level. So I think it does happen, and I think the other thing that uh, is not being uh, taken account of is that uh, a lot of times when people talk about uh, workplaces supposedly getting safer, they're not uh, dealing with the concept of uh, what's been called reshoring. The idea that you know the world. I, the article mentioned. Uh, the, the worldwide supply chain, right? That that uh, we, you know, you can make the part in Bangladesh, or you can make it in Alabama. But one thing we know is going to happen is that there's going to be speed up of that uh, production line, which was exactly what happened to this uh, to this poor worker. So, so I, it, you know, none of that, nothing in that article surprised me, and I do think it's emblematic of some of the deficiencies in workers' comp law and even personal injury law. Well, what I find interesting is that, you know, if you look at most of the big auto plants in the South now, almost all the workers they're hiring are temp. I'm, Volkswagen just started a new assembly line in Chattanooga, and about a thousand new temps were hired to work on it. Yeah. You know, and for a lot of folks coming into the auto industry, you know, when you're a temp, you're always trying to get to be a permanent employee. Uh, this woman was certainly hoping to be a permanent employee. And you know, what What does that say? I mean, I, th- I think Trump is at this point where, you know, he's bringing all these jobs back to America, but what are these jobs going to look like? Well, you know, there's a relationship between uh, temp employee, uh, employees and temp employment in the auto industry and a phenomenon like uh, Uber, right? And the relationship is that the uh, the legal sort of game that's being played is to create an environment where uh, either no one's an employee or if they are an employee, if the if uh, the worker is an employee, they're not the employee of the actual uh, production facility. They're the employee of someone else, right? And that lowers costs significantly for the uh, production facility. The problem is we wind up with uh, all kinds of difficulties uh, regarding um, you know getting people paid according to what their the value that they're providing to the uh, you know to the to the uh, automaker or the or the parts manufacturer and so forth. So, so there is a relationship, you know. Um, the other problem, Mike, that I don't think gets discussed enough is when uh, an employer uh, actually is held responsible for the death of a worker. The rational response for the employer uh, might be to actually make the workplace safer. But if your employer is a temp employer, 
then uh, the same kind of incentive uh, for safety may not be in evidence because it may not be the production facility that's actually experiencing some of the costs associated with the injury. So, so it's kind of a shell game, and, and we all sense it when we see these stories. And, and what do you think, uh, you know, does, does being temp and then the decline in workers' comp law, is it making it tougher and tougher for workers to push back against their employees in the courtroom or in the, you know, regulatory process? Well, you know, think of the, the question about whether uh, a worker is or is not an employee. Uh, I teach this uh, subject in law school, uh, and there are a number of factors that have to be gone through, uh, typically at a contested proceeding, at a hearing. Now, the average worker is not going to be able to uh, to do that kind of thing in hearing. There are there are things that uh, the average worker can um, you know argue in a in a hearing room or in a courtroom. This is not one of them because it, it's a complicated analysis, and you know the average worker isn't even may, may not even know that one of the pivotal issues in a case is whether um, he or she is an employee. So I, I do think it makes it more difficult for employees. Uh, to push back, uh, uh, to even be covered by statutes. One other thing I, f- I found that was interesting is that there has been a program, a national emphasis program designed by OSHA to focus heavily on the auto industry in the South. At one point, the uh, rate of injury in the Alabama auto industry in around 2010 was about twice that of the rest of the country. Uh, so there was a national emphasis program. That program expired, and now OSHA uh, is saying that the Trump administration is going to renew that program. But what I wonder about is how does an agency like OSHA function under Trump? Are OSHA inspectors going to be making the tough cases anymore? Well, um, one of the, the way that agencies are structured uh, is that you have a, a political appointee at the top of the agency. Now, that appointee who is running the agency, essentially, is making requests to the uh, administration for a budget. Now, budget priorities have a lot to do with what an agency is or is not going to be able to do, right? So if the, so if the presidential appointee, the, the top person in the agency, doesn't request money, they're not going to get money. Um, now, the career employees don't typically change with the changing of the guard uh, with respect to presidential appointees. And what I mean by career employees is that, that you may have lawyers inside of OSHA or inspectors inside of OSHA that have been working for that agency for, for 20 or 30 years. They continue to do their work, and uh, uh, you know most of them are dedicated public officials. But if they don't have the money to do the job, or if the agency at the top levels decides uh, they're not going to have the an initiative like the one you described, uh, that's the end of the story. There's nothing that the uh, career employee can do. And that's not a situation that many career employees want to speak up and lift their heads because that you know this is a time that in some of these agencies that you know career employees will get pushed out. I went through some of this uh, when I I was a, a field attorney with the National Labor Relations Board at the time that the uh, George W. Bush um, administration came on board uh, uh, the first time uh, post uh, uh, post Clinton, and uh, and so I've witnessed some of this uh, firsthand, and and you know there. Uh, obviously, there, there are the, the, the kinds of things that everybody would recognize as being chilling on career employees. You know, maybe, maybe if I speak too loudly, uh, you know, I'll get fired or I'll be uh, given uh, work assignments that are, that are less desirable. But there are, there are subtle things, too. Uh, just, uh, there's just a lack of interest from your superiors, for example, 
in some of the things that you would like to uh, to focus on. And if you're a career employee and you want to get promoted and you want to get some raises along the line somewhere, uh, you may not find yourself pursuing things that you thought were important when you started working for that agency 15 or 20 years ago. You begin to uh, even sometimes subconsciously, I think, uh, toe the line of uh, less aggressive enforcement. And w- one area that we saw uh, of less aggressive enforcement is that OSHA is no longer publicizing uh, when it takes enforcement action. Uh, there's been a big scandal in the workplace safety community. As someone who covers workplace safety, OSHA's press releases when they announce an enforcement distri- decision are extremely helpful. Uh, one, they let you know that uh, enforcement by OSHA happened. But more than that, they are things that a reporter can take and easily turn around an article out of. Um, they contain often several quotes from government officials denouncing the company. And they contain all the legal paperwork. So you can talk about what exactly happened in the case. Uh, since Trump has taken over OSHA, OSHA has not issued a single press release. So for many workplace safety reporters, we really don't know what's going on unless somebody who is an advocate calls us up and says, oh, well, we just heard down in Louisiana, OSHA did that or OSHA did this. Um, you know, this is a problem that I find interesting because the story of the Alabama auto case, uh, Payday covered it when it first broke. And we covered it because we read an OSHA press release. And many other reporters, including the Daily Beast and now Bloomberg Businessweek, uh, followed up on the same story. And this story has gotten wide traction in part because OSHA presented the story so easily to reporters and did active outreach. Um, how much do you think that that hurts companies when they no longer have to feel that they're going to be publicly shamed and they may be able to play the refs? Well, you know, I think that um, uh, I, I think it does in the long run hurt companies and it hurts workers and it hurts uh, society. And I think what's so interesting about what you're saying, and uh, it's really kind of a subtlety, is that, you know, when you think about a fine that's imposed by OSHA, and we'll we'll throw out a number, we'll say uh, $2 million, and and, and we might confess that, wow, that's a a big fine, uh, you know, in OSHA terms. You know, oftentimes uh, that is uh, plugged into a company's bottom line. It's the cost of doing business. And frankly, um, they plan right now for what they uh, expect their legal liability is going to be in five years. And yes, that includes the death of workers. Okay, and I so 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 you've seen companies that actually plan for a couple workers to die. Oh, I I know that this happens. In fact, I teach uh, torts law um, at uh, my law school, and uh, one of the things we talk about is that uh, you know it's not as if productive entities don't know that workers are going to die. Uh, of course, they know they're going to die. It's not that it's not as if car manufacturers don't know that consumers are going to die when they drive down the road in their car. They they know. And the question becomes, well, how much are you going to pay for a car? How much is the company going to uh, you know invest in safety to make a perfectly safe car? And so there are a series of trade offs that go on. What I think that companies I, what, why I think what you say is especially important is that what companies really fear uh, I believe, is publicization of, um, of poor working conditions and the potential for the general public getting stirred up and workers getting stirred up, because that's the kind of thing that can, uh, that can change laws, right? Last week's confirmation hearing for Gorsh brought to life uh, an interesting case called the frozen trucker case. Basically, a trucker 
uh, was freezing to death because they were forced to wait by the side of the road. The trucker decided to leave the location where they were being forced to stay and go somewhere else. Uh, Al Franken uh, has gotten a lot of attention for calling out uh, Gorsh's uh, decision in that case in favor of firing the trucker. He said, and this is a quote from Al Franken, it is absurd to say this company is in its rights to fire him. I had a career in identifying absurdity, and I know it when I see it. You were talking about this today that one, Al Franken really screwed up what happened there. Explain this. Well, let, let me start off with a, um, with a proposition. Okay, um, and it's one of the first things you learn as a law student studying um, employment and labor law. It's called employment at will. I'm sure you've heard of the uh, concept, and and basically it, it what, means you can be fired at any time. So, and what we say, the, the long-winded way of saying that is, an employer can take an adverse action against an employee for a good reason, a bad reason, or no reason at all. Okay, uh, it just can't take an action against an employee for an unlawful reason. So what that boils down to is can an employer can an employer fire somebody who walks off the job because uh, he's cold, he or she is cold and may freeze to death? Uh, the answer is yes, unless there is a statute that says the employer can't fire the employee. Now, in the frozen trucker case, there was a statute that said uh, if a an employer fires a, uh, a truck driver who's under the, um, uh, falls under certain trucking regulations uh, because that truck driver had a reasonable uh, uh, fear of, um, of, of being involved in an accident and operating unsafe, an unsafe vehicle, then uh, that, such a firing in that case would be unlawful. So I, I want so, you to, so, yeah. So the law says in this instance that if a worker fears for danger in the transportation industry, such as a trucker, they're able to, to, to walk away in these situations. But most workers don't have that right. Most workers don't have that right. And uh, so one of the, one of the famous, um, speaking of cold weather cases, an old Supreme Court case from the 1960s called Washington Aluminum. And it's, the facts are, are, are similar, except you don't have truck drivers. You know, um, a bunch of employees uh, walk off the job uh, in Baltimore because it's too cold, and they're and they're fired. They're fired because they they uh, they leave the job. But what uh, what is different about that case is they went together as a group. And again, there was a statute called the National Labor Relations Act that protects not just union activity, but something called protected concerted activity. If you and I walk off the off the job together because we're cold and in protest of the cold working conditions. We're protected. If either one of us does that as an individual, we're not protected. But what I want you to understand, uh, what I want everybody to understand, is that uh, the presumption is uh, that an employer can fire you for any reason at all. And one of the things that I think that uh, Al Franken, uh, you know, a lot of his questioning of Gorsuch, and, and, and Gorsuch made some legal errors uh, in, the, uh, in the case, I think. But I think the idea that uh, Gorsuch was... Uh, somehow sanctionable because uh, he, uh, you know, he he voted to uphold the firing of a worker who left the truck because he was cold. Well, I've got news for you, Senator Franken. That's the state of the law. That that is essentially what the the, the default rule of uh, of labor and employment law is that an employer can fire you for any reason. So you were saying, and that the best thing for workers to do when they want to confront the boss is to take a friend with them. Absolutely, um, because that immediately converts the situation from individual activity, which is not protected under the NLRA generally, 
and uh, concerted activity. So uh, the moment that uh, a worker protests with another worker, uh, the worker is engaging in concerted activity and receives uh, many of the protections that workers uh, receive under the law when they're engaging in union activity. All right. Well, Mike, thanks for coming on this week, and thanks for talking. My pleasure. Thank you, Mike. Boss Talk is a work in progress, much like the rest of the labor movement. And we depend on our members, our readers, uh, those who listen to us, to give us the energy to keep building. And and we're here to be a publication for you as readers. We want to know what you think. And we want to write stories about workers, funded by workers, from the perspective of workers. And it's up to folks like you. So write in, donate, let us know what you think about this. And we'll keep listening to you and we'll keep putting out a show with some of the most interesting perspectives on labor law this week. 